Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast. The Podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 185. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosland Weiborg Thun. Tonight, we continue our stay in Eastern Europe and the city of Bucharest in Romania. We left off last episode with several attacks on young women by, at the time, an unknown assailant. We, however, know his identity. Ion Rimaru, the butcher of Bucharest. We close in on our subject this evening, and more details about his life and crimes come to light before I present to you his ultimate fate. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Amy. Boo, Brenda, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Connor, Corbin, Craig, Sid, Derek, Emily, Fawn, James, Janine, Jennifer, John, Johnny, Jonathan, Caitlin, Kathy, Christina, Kylie, Lance, Lisa, Lisbeth, Magic Man, Marilyn, Meow, Missy, Nick, Oakley, Operation Brownie Pockets, Robert O, Robert R., Russell, Sabina, Skortnia, Scott, Sputnik, The Radio, Trent, Val, and Vanessa. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. 
I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. A psychopath, dear listener, is unique among people. As I have stated before on this show, most serial killers are psychopaths, but not all psychopaths are serial killers. Most psychopaths are not even killers. What they do share, though, is a complete disregard of ethics, morals, and rules. They only care about what they perceive to benefit themselves and or their goals. For this reason, psychopathic serial killers are often not just killers. They often commit a wide variety of crimes. Ion Rimaru was no different. As he was walking in the dark streets of Bucharest in the summer of 1970, on the 19th of July to be exact, he was hunting for women to assault and perhaps kill. To his annoyance, none were to be found. Kalea Rahuvai is the main street leading into the city centre from the south. During daytime, the street is filled with people commuting to and from work, going to shops, grocery stores, and so on. However, at night, the area at the time was almost completely deserted. Since Rimaru couldn't find a victim, he saw a different opportunity when he was outside the clothing store OCL Confectia. There were some nice suits on display, and he wanted one. So he picked up a rock and smashed the plate glass window and stepped inside. Inside he found the striped suit he wanted, two jackets and two pairs of beige trousers. He bundled the clothes up and walked home. A few days after the theft, Ion Rimaru visited his father wearing his new clothes. His father was not a stupid man, and he knew his son did not have any steady income. When he inquired his son about where he got the clothes, his son lied, but his father would have none of that. After pressuring his son for the truth, he soon found out that the new clothes were indeed stolen. Florea Rimaru took the clothes from his son lent him some older trousers and a shirt to get home in, and anonymously returned the stolen goods to the clothing store in a parcel. Simple theft was by far not the only other crime than sexual assault and murder Ion Rimaru committed. Only a couple of weeks after stealing from the clothing store, on the 24th of July, 19-year-old Margareta Hanganu, left her evening shift at the shoe factory. She walked along with her co-worker, 46-year-old Ilana Kiorik, and the pair was heading towards Foizor Street. When they got there, Ileana got on a bus and left Margareta to walk on 
by herself. The street she found herself on was dark and poorly lit. She clutched her handbag, which contained a small sum of money and a pair of nice shoes. As she walked past a parked lorry, a shadowy figure jumped out from behind her. Before she could turn around, he had smashed her over the head with an iron bar, causing her to fall to the ground. The man, Ion Rimaru, quickly grabbed her bag and ran away. By the time the young woman got to her feet, he was long gone. Olga Braitaru was the manager of the Uranus restaurant. The restaurant had its name from the street it lay on, Uranus Street. On the evening of the 22nd of November, 1970, the restaurant was full of happy people celebrating a baby's christening. Religion was frowned upon by the country's communist rulers, but not outright forbidden. Inside the restaurant, there was warm light, good food, good drink, and a good atmosphere. Outside, however, the streets were getting dark, and the rain was pouring down heavily. By 2 a.m. that night, the party had finished, and Olga was driven home by the husband of one of her employees. Olga lived in a flat on the Pachi Boulevard, where she stepped out of the car into the driving rain. She sighed a sigh of relief as she stepped inside the foyer of the building. There, she swore under her breath when she realized the elevator was out of order. She lived on the seventh floor, and walking the stairs after a long day at work did not hold much appeal. She was not alone in the stairwell. A man had been waiting on the second-floor landing for quite a while, hoping a woman would come along alone. His name was Ion Rimaru, and he was out for blood. As soon as Olga stepped onto the second-floor landing, he leapt out from the shadows and struck her in the head with an iron bar. The middle-aged woman screamed in pain and terror, as her attacker dragged her down the stairs and out of the building. He dragged her, still screaming, around the back. There, there were a set of stairs leading down to the basement. He pushed her up against the basement door and beat her a couple of more times to make her stop screaming, which she did. Then he started to savagely rip off her clothes. When he managed to rip away her undergarments, he started to rape Olga. As he did so, she started moaning in pain, and this probably saved her from being murdered. One of the families in the apartment block had heard her earlier screams, but had not acted on them as they had stopped. But when they heard a woman moaning in agony right below their apartment, they realized they needed to do something. The wife in the apartment stuck her head out of the window overlooking the basement entrance and shone a flashlight down there. When Ion Rimaru, still with his penis inside Olga, suddenly had the beam of a flashlight in his eyes, he quickly pulled out, grabbed Olga's purse, and ran away. Olga was left behind, semi-awake, battered, bleeding, and laying in a pool of mud and blood. At the time, the totalitarian regime of Romania had destroyed citizens' social skills. Everyone, 
was deathly afraid of any contact with authorities, and with good reason. By the beginning of the 1970s, Romanians had for several decades been treated like prisoners in their own country. The 1950s had been the worst. Back then it would have been enough to be wearing a nice suit or dress in order for the secret police to quote-unquote disappear you. Things were beginning to thaw a bit by the late 60s and early 70s, but the legacy of decades of brutal and violent oppression had made the general population afraid of each other. No one trusted one another. The idea of someone being an informant for the secret police was a very real fear people had. The result was that people did not come to each other's help when bad things happened. Olga lay where she was for five hours before someone called the local authorities. After being interrogated by the local militia, she was sent to hospital where she luckily made a full recovery. Georgita Schwechtu was a 19-year-old beautiful young woman. As with many other women in this saga, she too worked at a restaurant in Bucharest. On the 16th of February 1971, she left the restaurant at two in the morning to go home. Normally, it would take her about an hour to get home from work. This night, she was lucky with how the buses she used connected. So she was almost home after just thirty minutes. She was a confident young woman and used to being alone on the streets at night. She noticed a lone man leaning against a street sign outside of her building. Something told her it was bad news. She trembled as she approached her home. Just as she passed the man, he jumped towards her and Georgita managed to scream, and I quote, People, he is killing me, before he landed several blows with an iron bar against her head. The attacker, Ion Rimaru, was in the process of trying to remove the young woman's clothes when a neighbor woke up from the screaming and turned on the lights facing the street. This was enough to scare Rimaru, and he buttoned up his trousers, grabbed his victim's handbag, and ran off. The neighbor saw the young woman stagger away, but did nothing to help. When Georgita got home, she managed to mumble to her husband that she had been attacked before slipping into a coma. As usual, it took several hours before the local militia arrived along with an ambulance that transported her to the hospital. It was a close call, but she survived. Having fled the scene, Ion Rimaru was furious that he had not been able to fulfill his fantasy of rape and murder. He did not linger long before striking again. The very next night after his attack on Georgita, he struck again. Elisabetta Florea was also young and also beautiful. She was only eighteen years old, and she too worked at a restaurant. Late that night she left with two male co-workers, who parted ways with her about halfway home. She noticed that as her co-workers left, a man she did not know climbed into her bus and sat down behind her. 
when the bus stopped only 200 meters from her home, she quickly got off and rapidly walked towards her apartment building. About halfway, the man from the bus, Ion Rimaru, ran up behind her, grabbed her coat, and spun her violently around to face him. He shouted, and here I am going to quote Romanian, Apologies for the abysmal pronunciation. Stai jami bat yok detine ori te tai. This translates in English as, and I quote, Stay put so I can have my way with you, or I will cut you. End quote. He produced a knife and held it before her face as he spoke. Elisabetta was absolutely terrified and screamed for help. No one came. As she screamed, Rimaru pushed her against the gate of the nearest house and started to cut her with his knife. He stabbed her face, her hand, and her right leg a total of fourteen times. Each slash would have been extremely painful and traumatizing. Rimaru only stopped the slaughter when a neighbor opened a window and hollered down, asking what the hell he was doing. Rimaru immediately stopped his attack and ran away. Amazingly, Elisabetta survived the ordeal and managed to move to a nearby bench where she sat down shivering, the rain and blood pouring down her body. No one came to help her. A police car happened to be driving past and the officers inside saw the obviously troubled woman and got out. The police called the local militia, who interrogated Elisabetta before allowing her to be transported to the hospital, where she made a full recovery, apart from the psychological trauma, of course. Yet again, Rimaru had been prevented from completing his fantasy. Also, just as so many serial killers before and after him, when he saw that the authorities in no way whatsoever was trying to find him, he thought himself better and more clever than the police. Fanica Ilie was yet another restaurant worker. She was a 31 years old married woman with a four-year-old daughter. On the 5th of March, less than a month after the attack on Elisabetta, she left her late-night shift at the Vulcan restaurant. She too had an escort almost all the way home. It was no more than a few meters from her apartment house when Ion Rimaru leapt out at her. He used his trusted metal rod to strike her hard on the head, causing her to fall down unconscious. He quickly looked around, saw no one, and dragged her body to the back of the apartment building. He rolled her on her back and started ripping her clothes off. When almost all her clothes had been violently ripped off using his knife, he unbuckled his own trousers and started to rape the woman's unconscious body vaginally. He reveled in the fact that she did not resist, and finally he felt he could fulfill his violent fantasies. He savagely bit into her breasts, almost tearing off her nipples. After he ejaculated inside her, he bit away chunks of flesh from her thighs and ate it. 
Fanica Ilia had died sometime during the rape from massive internal hemorrhaging. By now, the militia saw that they had to do something about all these violent attacks against women. They risked political problems if they allowed the killer to go free any longer. Perhaps the news of the attacks would reach Western media, and this would be unacceptable. They had few leads, so they started by interrogating 300 mentally ill men. Their efforts came to naught, and Ion Rimaru had no intention of stopping. The last attack had been almost perfect. The only downside was that the woman had been unconscious, so he had not been able to enjoy her suffering. He was determined to rectify this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time seems to be a dwindling resource nowadays. Work, family, bills, chores, and the endless time thief of social media. But imagine if you will, dear listener, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. So. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. It is Claire 
that Ion Rimaru preyed on women he had seen while visiting restaurants. Georgita, whom everyone called Geta, Hopa, worked as a waitress and cloakroom attendant in the Prietenia restaurant on 11 Junier Street in Bucharest. She was a beautiful woman, 35 years old, and dyed her hair blonde. She was married, but for some reason did not live in the same apartment as her husband. Instead, she lived with her female friend, Pia, along with her nine-year-old daughter. Yet again it was about 2 a.m. at night, yet again about a month after the previous attack. This time it was the 9th of April, and Geta was on her way home from the late shift at the restaurant. As she passed a dark alley, Ion Rimaru jumped out from the shadows and struck her repeatedly in the head and torso with both a hatchet and a knife. He struck her a total of forty-eight times. By then she was unconscious on the ground, and he dragged her into the dark alley. Before doing anything more, he stole her wristwatch. Then he again ripped off almost all her clothes. Even though she was seriously wounded, she was not dead yet, and moaned in pain as he started raping her. This time he bit off pieces of her breasts, and after having ejaculated inside her, he bit off a piece of her vagina. At this point she was dead. No neighbors came out to help, and no one reported anything to police other than the fact that a dead woman was laying close to the street. After this latest murder, authorities managed to conclude that the cases of Elena Oprea, Olga Baira Taru, Elisabetta Florea, and Georgita Geta Popa had the same perpetrator. In addition to a number of new interrogations, the militia started what they named Operation Vulturul, meaning Eagle. This was a massive surveillance operation. 6,000 men from various law enforcement agencies patrolled the streets of Bucharest each night, as well as 100 cars and 40 motorcycles. In addition to this, medical personnel, night bus and tram operators, hotel and bar employees were all mobilized to report directly to their operation task force if they saw anything out of the ordinary. Much to the malicious chagrin, they also had to cooperate with the hated Securitate, Romania's secret police. While being arrested by the militia usually did not result in anything other than perhaps a ticket or a few days in jail, being apprehended by the Securitate usually meant that you were never seen again by anyone, anywhere. Everyone feared the Securitate, even the police and local militia. The operation resulted in over 2,500 arrests, over 8,000 individuals were stopped and had their papers checked. Still, Ion Rimaru managed to attack several more women and kill one more woman before he was stopped. Stana Sarasin was not a waitress. She was a tram driver and had just finished her late evening shift and was on her way home on the 2nd of May, 1971. 
At around 1 a.m., she was stopped by Ion Rimaru, who asked her what time it was. As she was checking her watch, the young man reached out and grabbed her by her genitals. She immediately slapped his face, which Rimaru did not appreciate at all. He responded by punching her straight in the face, causing her to fall on the ground as she was screaming for help. Luckily for her, a neighbor had been sitting on his balcony and shouted down at Rimaru, causing him to flee. As per his modus operandi, being interrupted while attacking a woman caused Rimaru to become furious. Only three days later, he was once again on the prowl, hunting for blood. Mihaela Ekaterina Ursu, also known as Pussy, was thirty-nine years old. She was an educated woman and worked as an assistant in the optics department of the Faculty of Physics in the University of Bucharest, while she was working towards her PhD. She lived in an apartment on the third floor of 4 Rotunda Street. She owned seven cats who shared her apartment along with her mother-in-law and husband. It was around midnight on the 4th of May when she left her office at the university on her way home. Once again, the rain was pouring down, making the already dark streets even darker. Ion Rimaru was in his element, and when he saw Pussy walking along the streets alone, he approached her. She saw him move towards her and tried to evade him, but it was too late. He lashed out with his iron bar that struck her head, causing her to scream and tumbled backwards. Rimaru grabbed her around the chest and produced a knife. As she was screaming in fear, he sliced open her neck, causing massive bleeding and extreme pain. He held her pinned from behind as she spasmed and gurgled, drowning in her own blood. When he felt her body go limp, he picked her up and carried her to the back of the nearby courtyard. There he ripped off all her clothing and turned her dead body over. Then he placed a pile of bricks under her stomach, so that her buttocks were raised up in the air. He then held the body fast as he started to rape her dead body both vaginally and anally. When he had ejaculated all that he managed, he got dressed and left her in the rain. Her body was not discovered until the next morning. After the murder of Mihaela Pusi Ursu, Ion Rimaru began acting more erratically, not attacking waitresses exclusively, and even going after two women who were together, both of which lived to tell the tale, and both having had a good look at their attacker. The clue, which led directly to Rimaru's arrest, was a medical diagnosis sheet. On the 4th of March, 1971, a group of six doctors found that he had suspected periodic epilepsy. This diagnosis, printed on a sheet of paper, was found beneath the body of Mihaela Ekaterina Ursu. Between her fingers, she had also strands of his hair 
that were used to identify him. Because the note was wet and bloody, only the letterhead from the Bucharest student's hospital was visible. On the 15th of May, specialists determined that the note had been produced in Octavian Yeste's office in March 1971. He had seen 83 students that month, of whom 15, including Rimaru, had not deposited their diagnoses with university officials. The police closely monitored each suspect and three officers went to Rimaru's dormitory on the 27th of May. He was not home, but while they searched his room, he came back at 1 p.m. In his sack he had an axe and a knife, tests on the hair and bite marks he left, and the testimony of witnesses left no reasonable doubt as to his guilt. After his arrest, Rimaru remained completely silent, staring expressionlessly into space. The investigators decided they needed to try alternative methods of making Rimaru talk. No, their listener. They did not use torture. Instead, they disguised a police officer who pretended to be a thief and made him Rimaru's cellmate. After two months, of intense police work, Rimaru admitted to twenty-three very serious crimes. Rimaru, whose trial drew significant public attention, thought he had convinced investigators that he was utterly insane. He was apparently shocked when he read the report stating that his judgment was not impaired by mental illness that he did not suffer from hallucinations, delirium, or similar conditions. He immediately recanted his previous confessions in their entirety, and refused to speak for the remainder of the trial. Eventually, Rimaru was sentenced to death, with the courtroom erupting in applause when the penalty was pronounced. He appealed, but the Supreme Tribunal upheld the sentence. There was no rule with regard to the time which had to pass from the moment of sentencing to the execution itself. Sometimes this was organized quickly, in several days or weeks. Other times it could be postponed. The issue of political will in this matter was important. There are some rumors and theories that the supreme leader of Romania at the time, Nicolae Ceaușescu, personally got involved in the case and wanted Rimaru to be executed as soon as possible. There is no actual proof of this, however. It is very much likely that the communist authorities wanted to put an end to the Rimaru affair quickly and to try and make the whole case disappear from public memory. Just as in Soviet Russia, the doctrine was that serial murder was a staple of the degenerate and decadent West. For a gruesome case of serial murder as this, where Rimaru not only murdered several women, but ate their flesh, drank their blood, and raped their corpses, the impetus was to make sure it all went away. 
The death penalty was abolished in Romania and replaced by life imprisonment in 1990. Up to that time, executions took place by firing squad, the majority at Gilava prison, several kilometers from Bucharest. Gilava was historically a place where historic massacres and terrible atrocities had taken place. The prison had an extermination regime, which meant that anyone who ended up there would be considered already dead. Executions took place in open air, in the grounds to the right of the prison. The space was punctuated by the posts to which the condemned were tied. Decades before, it used to be an orchard of peach trees, and the place had entered collective memory as the Valley of the Peach Trees. The execution itself was prefaced by a process which was meant to break the prisoner's will and prepare him for death. A prime example of this process was the legendary Black Room. From the time when the date of the execution was set, the prisoner was moved from his cell to a special room called the Black Room, located somewhere near the main entrance of what in the West would be called the Death Row. There were no windows, and at the moment when the door closed behind the prisoner, a frightening darkness closed in. When we talk about darkness, dear listener, most often what we actually mean is low-light conditions. In the Black Room, however, Darkness was complete. No light came through the insulated door. There were no vents to other rooms with light. Nothing. To be imprisoned in the black room was very much like being buried alive. The temperature in the room was maintained at 13 degrees Celsius. Very uncomfortably cold, but not cold enough to cause hypothermia and death. To make it even more uncomfortable, the prisoner was not given any blanket to cover himself with, and the entire floor was covered with a thin layer of cold water. The use of the black room was a successful psychological tactic. Once out of the room, prisoners were completely disoriented. Some had difficulty in recovering their eyesight, and themselves asked to be blindfolded. Life had lost its meaning, and the execution that followed was now regarded with joy and expectation. Now, this might be uncalled for, but if you would permit your humble host a brief comment. In my view, the practice of the Black Room seems to me, to be more humane than what is practiced in, for example, the USA. I won't comment on the politics regarding the death penalty itself, but it is a fact that waiting for death is torture. Knowing the date and time of your own death can utterly break a person's sanity, especially if he finds himself in rather or relative comfortable living conditions. The condemned wants nothing more than to live, even though prison life can be rough. For most people, it is far preferable than being executed. 
the practice of the black room removes such a fear. The condemned faced with such terror wants to be put out of his misery. So, in a way, it is actually more humane. In any case, it is an interesting practice that your humble host had not heard of before researching this episode. It is not clear when the regime abandoned the use of the Black Room, but Rimaru was subject to new rules and techniques at the time of his execution in 1971. For example, the condemned man's ankles were shackled together and he was handcuffed. A very dangerous prisoner would have added to the leg shackles a chain weighing about 10 kilos and a ball of the same weight which he carried in his arms when moving around. On top of all this, the prisoner was subject to a form of suicide watch. Informer prisoners were selected to keep a constant watch on the condemned man to make sure that he did not devise a method of suicide. At the same time, they had another role, to harass the quote-unquote living dead man, as they called the condemned one. They swore at him and attacked him physically, repeating that the death penalty was too easy for him, that he was a murderer and should be tortured, that if he weren't executed soon, he would die at their hands anyway, and it would be better to pray God for the day of the execution to come more quickly. They behaved like real monsters, supported by the guards, trying, by this brutal method of psychological pressure, to convince the condemned man that he had no reason to live, thus making it easier for him to accept the execution. Today there are no records to help us reconstruct the process of Rimaru's execution. There are, however, witness statements from participants who described what they thought was the most shocking elements, the conduct of the murderer on the point of death. On the 23rd of October, 1971, Rimaru did not have any last wishes, because he struggled ceaselessly. Dragged out of the car, which delivered him to the place of execution, he fought. He fought with the energy of a wild beast until the moment he was tied to the post with his hands behind his back. He tried to rip the clothes off himself with his teeth and circled around the post to dodge the bullets. During this time, the representative of the tribunal read out aloud a short exposition of his crimes. At the end, the commander of the penitentiary received the call to order the execution. Rimaru continued to struggle. His last words were, and I quote, Fetch my father, he is the guilty one. I want to live. End quote. On receiving the order, the firing squad delayed for a moment, startled and intimidated by the drama playing out in front of them. Added to this was the fact that Rimaru had kept dodging around the post and was hard to aim at accurately. When they fired, the majority of the bullets hit him in the back. But, at last, he was dead. It would probably have been a very painful death, since Rimaru managed to struggle and move around the execution post it is doubtful he would have been shot in the heart, 
causing rapid death. Instead, he would have been shot in the lungs, causing him to drown in his own blood. The pathologist confirmed the death and filled in the death certificate. Rimaru's body, wrapped in a white sheet and placed in a modest coffin, was buried in the cemetery of the prison situated somewhere at the end of the village, about five kilometers away. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And so ends the saga of Eon Rimaru. The next episode will feature a fresh new serial killer expose. So as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. What follows is a message to my Norwegian listeners in Norwegian. Seriemordepodden har lansert, i det du hører dette, sin femte episode. Sagan om Jeffrey Dahmer går mot slutten och er tilgjengelig samtidig som du lytter til dette. Så som de sier i Radioland, følg med. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit theskpodcast. Thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>